Hi, everybody, and welcome back to another edition of This Week in the Hearing. I'm Brian Taylor, and today we're going to be talking about some subjects that sometimes I think kind of fly under the radar, uh, especially at This Week in Hearing, where we focus an awful lot on hearing aid technology. And, you know, rightfully so, there's a lot of really fascinating new uh, products and features coming to market, self-fitting hearing aids, automated testing. And I think my colleagues, Bob Trainer, Amina Mlani, uh, and uh, others uh, have done a fantastic job of, uh, of summarizing some of those uh, things that have been coming to market. And uh, you can see those on our This Week in Hearing channel. Uh, but today we're going to focus and shift gears a little bit and focus on uh, unreported hearing aid problems. And also, I think we'll probably touch on a little bit social and emotional, the social and emotional impact that hearing loss can have on adults. And uh, with me today to talk about that, our guest is uh, one of the most prolific researchers uh, in the profession right now. I mean, uh, I, I have a file of probably a dozen peer-reviewed uh, papers that she and her colleagues have uh, published over the last just couple of years. And we're gonna touch on just a few of those papers today, I think. Uh, and my guest is Dr. Beck Bennett, who's a researcher at the Ear Science Institute in Western Australia, Perth to be exact, although I shall tell us uh, she's not uh, dialing in from Perth, but the other side of, of the continent. So uh, welcome, Dr. Bennett. Thanks, Brian. Thanks for having me today. It's great to have you uh, on our, uh, our uh, our episode of This Week in Hearing, where we can talk about something other than just technology, uh, maybe contextualize a little bit. And I thought a good place to start would be for you to kind of tell us about yourself, uh, the institution where you've done a lot of great research, and also what those research interests might be. Yeah, so I'm a, an audiologist. I've been a clinical audiologist for about 17 years now, and I've been a researcher for, well, I started my PhD in 2013 and finished it um, in 2018, having three babies in between, um, and all at the University of Western Australia while working at the Ear Science Institute in Perth um, in Western Australia. Um, I'm very fortunate to be living in an era where I don't have to physically be in the same place as all of my wonderful colleagues. Uh, so I was physically in Perth for the first sort of 11 years that I worked with ear science, but the last three years I've been over here in a glorious Queensland in the Sunshine Coast, um, enjoying the beautiful sunshine that we have out there this morning. And uh, yeah, my, so my PhD, I focused on hearing aids, uh, hearing aid problems and hearing aid handling and management um, issues. And but my more recent sort of postdoctoral research, I'm really interested in those psychosocial and emotional impacts of hearing loss, um, predominantly how that impacts on the person with hearing loss, but more so what we as audiologists are doing about it and how we're supporting our clients um, with managing and, and how we're supporting them with those psychosocial impacts of hearing loss. Well, I thought a good place to a good starting point with regarding your research would be to talk about unreported hearing aid problems. And uh, I believe it was about a year ago in the Hearing Journal, which is, we call it a trade publication, uh, there was a really excellent summary of some of the work you've done in that area. I think that uh, I, I just, I've used it in my own talks, citing some of the statistics and some of the findings from, uh, from that work. So maybe you can kind of give us uh, a flavor for your work in the area of unreported hearing aid problems. 
Yeah, well, this this work really was some of the first work I did when I moved into research. So as a clinician, I would see that majority of our clients would have these wonderful uh, experiences with their hearing devices, wonderful outcomes. They love their devices. They use them often. But then there was this proportion and, and the research sort of suggests it's anywhere between sort of 15% or up to 30% in some studies in some countries. So 15 to 30% of people are not using their hearing aids or don't feel like they're getting any benefit and it's a bit of an anomaly because we can see that majority of people really do get a lot of benefit and so I wanted to drill down and better understand why there was this proportion of people that weren't benefiting or, or weren't really getting much out of their hearing aids, weren't using them. And so I did a, a focus group, um, a, a sort of a qualitative study where we interviewed a whole lot of people who owned hearing aids and that included people who use them and some people who own them but didn't use them as well as a whole lot of um, audiologists and audiometrists I'm not sure if that terminology translates to the US but here we have um, clinicians with different types of qualifications so clinicians and uh, we interviewed them to ask them about um, the kinds of problems that arise with hearing aid ownership And so we had these different groups and we asked them, went through this process and asked them to list all the different problems that arise. And that we had this long list, hundreds and hundreds of of problems. Um, We sort of grouped all the information and removed the um, duplicates and kind of edited it down to a a short list of about 100 or so core sort of individual problems that can arise with hearing aids, which it's kind of huge, like a hundred different problems that can arise. Oh, it's so as, a long list, right? It, it is a long list. So thinking as clinicians, we need to be aware of these hundred things that can go wrong. And at some point, we kind of need to make our clients aware that there are these hundred things that can go wrong. And so if it goes wrong, don't feel like you're alone and don't feel like you failed or we failed or it's failed. It can happen. Mm-hmm. And we can fix it together. We can get through these problems. So the fact that there were sort of a hundred or so problems was a, a huge finding in the first instance. Mm-hmm. Um, but what we then did is we asked the um, adults with hearing aids as well as the uh, clinicians to then group this list of a hundred in a way that made sense to them. And it's this, we call it this sort of thematic analysis where they identify core themes. And through this process, four key themes arised. Um, And so it was hearing aid management was one group of problems. Uh, Hearing aid sound quality and performance was another group of problems. Um, Thoughts, feelings and behaviours, which is this kind of how we sort of feel and and respond to hearing aid problems as they arise, whether we feel it's our fault or the clinician's fault or this sort of thing. Um, And then information and training. So knowledge about problems, training about how to overcome problems. I see. So one of the things that was really interesting about it was uh, the high, just the number of the percentage of people that actually had problems with their hearing aids and the number that didn't get reported to the clinicians. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So, so the second study we did then is we developed a survey based on the individual problems that were from the hearing aid management category and the hearing aid sound quality and performance category. Um, we turned that into a survey. Um, so there was about, oh, from memory, there was about 25 problems that were from those two categories. And we emailed that survey out to about 500. Well, we emailed it out to many more, but we received 
received a response from about 500 hearing aid owners from across Australia. So we were very fortunate to partner with seven different hearing clinics from all over Australia, um, some in uh, metropolitan areas, rural areas. We had young adults, older adults, all different mix of people, 500 hearing aid owners. And we asked them to tell us whether they had at some point experienced these problems or not, whether they were currently experiencing any of these problems and whether they had sought help from their clinician to overcome any of these problems. Now, the range of problems, so there were some people who I think there was, there was about 2% of people who had never experienced any of those problems and 98% of hearing aid owners had experienced at least one of these problems. Some of these people, it was only one or two problems and they'd overcome them and were fine. Mm -hmm. But I, th I think it was about 50% um, of people around that sort of mark um, had were experiencing about 50% of the problems. And some, it was sort of this bell curve. And so mm -hmm. some, there was this sort of small group who either had or were experiencing um, almost all of the problems. And so they're just so many problems that they're experiencing with, to do with hearing aid handling and management. So they couldn't insert it, they couldn't clean it, they couldn't change the filter, change the battery, or they weren't happy with the sound quality. It was too sharp or tinny or it hurt them or those sorts of things. They couldn't hear a noise, um, those sorts of problems that they would encounter. Right, that's really interesting. I, I guess I'm wondering if you could share your take on this for the clinician that's out there seeing these patients. I mean, does this speak to the importance of telecare to maybe offload some of the interpersonal, some of the interactions into smaller chunks that are more convenient for both the patient and the provider? I mean, what is? I guess what I'm asking back is, what does this research mean to the uh, to clinicians out there? Yeah, well. What, what it means to clinicians is that there are a lot of problems and the problems are real and that patients are experiencing them. And so if you can imagine the person that has a couple of problems um, is probably doing okay and can just put up with those problems or maybe address them themselves. But the person with lots of problems is more likely to, to give up. Um, and in fact, we looked at a, an association between hearing aid benefit and hearing aid success. So whether they self-reported their hearing aids were um, beneficial and successful and worthwhile, and there was an association. So people who had more problems felt that their hearing aids were not beneficial and weren't worthy. And so we're less likely to use them and we're less likely to refer their friends and family on to get more hearing aids and these sorts of things. Um, but an important part of that study was also that element about uh, whether they had reported the problems to their clinician or not. And for me, this was the big clincher. So about 50% of problems had not been reported to their clinician. Mm -hmm. And when we delve into that, uh, a subsequent study, we've delved into that a little bit deeper and mm -hmm. tried to identify what people do when they experience hearing aid problems and they talked about these were adults with hearing loss and they talk about sometimes they would go to their clinician. And as we saw from this paper, about 50% of problems are reported to clinicians, but 50% are not. And in these instances, this might be where the person will just put up with it 
or give up with their hearing aid or um, ask a friend or go online to find information and, and seek, seek help and support elsewhere. And as we all know, the internet is full of wonderful, wonderful resources, but it's also full of some perhaps B-grade and not very helpful resources and support. So I think there's a really important role for the audiologist, for the clinician to play in supporting clients to first of all realise that hearing aid problems can and probably will occur, but to let them know that we're here and we're here to help and these are the different ways we can help and to focus on that partnership and that long-term relationship. Yeah, it's kind of scary when you think about it. When I put my clinical hat on to think that about 50% of patients that have hearing aids are not letting us know that they're having difficulty or problems with them. And how do we close that gap? Is it more visits? Is it more, do we need to be more proactive? And what do you think? How do we close that gap? Yeah, well, here in Australia, our our model is that we will generally um, do a hearing assessment uh, and followed by a hearing aid fitting. And then there'll be this sort of six month period where we'll see the clients perhaps a few times within that six months to fine tune and get it right. And then we generally have an annual review appointment. So we are recalling our clients on an annual basis to check in and see if they're having any difficulties and if they need any support, fine tune, and maybe they need extra right. devices, you know, those sorts of things. I think that's similar um, here in North America. Oh, it's similar in the US? Oh, fantastic. Um, so we uh, just a couple of months ago, I think it was, we published a paper that looked at that, we call it an annual review appointment. And mm-hmm. the first paper we looked at what are, are people coming to that annual review appointment? And if so, who's coming? Why are they coming? And then what are they getting out of it? And so we offer uh, in Australia, if the service is funded by the government, so there's no cost to come to that annual review appointment. But even still, it was only about 30% of people were actually coming in for that review appointment. And it Mm -hmm. tended to not be people in remote locations. So as you say, this is an opportunity for tele then, how we support people in remote. And by remote, I don't mean rural kind of Australia remote. I just mean people that weren't living within a suburb of the clinic. Um, More than an hour drive or or a half hour drive. Yeah, definitely, definitely. So, Mm -hmm. um, So tele is something to consider to help us overcome that distance barrier uh, and also just a time barrier you know um but we also found it was people who valued the relationship with their clinician were more likely to come and get that support and have that annual appointment and so that personal relationship with your clients um i think is of utmost importance to make sure that they know that you're there and that you're going to support them um, at any point throughout the ongoing. It's not just about a hearing aid sale. It's about an ongoing relationship um, over the decades as they're going to need multiple hearing aids over the decades of their life. <laughs> right. I think that's a challenge here in the U.S. is we have a business model that's based on selling more products. Once yeah. one with this bundled model, it, it's, I, I think it, it, discourages clinicians from following up sometimes maybe the way that they should because yeah. the, the all of the revenue is kind of front loaded into this into the into the transaction but that's changing somewhat i think it may change even more rapidly now that um, otc and um, medicare our government funded healthcare system for seniors may pay for hearing aids starting in a few years and that could change some things in a big way uh, maybe there'll be a service component as part of that that will encourage people to come back in more often. Uh, yeah. Tell me a little bit more about um, 
this relationship aspect uh, to uh, you know people's willingness to come in? What what can clinicians do to foster a, a stronger bond with their patients? Yeah, so there is a bit of research out there about this um, patient and uh, clinician relationship. And I think a lot of it comes down to that sort of building rapport. I mean, if you think about your own experiences, have you ever been to a, a health professional and thought, okay, this doctor this health professional really hears me, really sees me, really knows what I need and and you have this relationship and you want to return to them? Or have you ever had that experience where you sit there and you think they are just trying to push me out the door and move on to the next client and they just it, it just feels like a conveyor belt kind of thing. You know, we've all had positive and negative experiences ourselves. And so it can be really as simple as just pause for a moment and reflect on those experiences. What made the good experience good and what made the bad experience bad? And in most cases, the good experience is where you don't feel rushed and you truly feel heard and listened to. Um, and the bad experience is where everything's rushed and flustered and you kind of, you're not, not really seen and heard in your entirety. And so I think what happens a lot with clinicians and, you know, guilty myself in my earlier years as well, um, is we kind of get in the habit of thinking, I'm the clinician, I'm driving this appointment. And what I need is I need to do a hearing assessment. I need to do REMS. I need to change the tubes. I need to do this. I need to do that. And then I need to get them out the door because I need to get the next one in. And we get in this mindset of I can't do it all in an hour, so I've got to rush, 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 rush. But sometimes mm -hmm. the client comes in and they need something different to what we're offering them. In fact, if I can sidetrack for a second, my husband mm -hmm. is a clinician as well. And mm -hmm. so he works um, in, in uh, um, actually, he works for Bloom, which is one of the Widex-owned um, companies here in Australia. Mm -hmm. And uh, he had a client not so long ago that he was working with. And uh, the client came in and said, you know, I've been putting it off for years. I'm ready for hearing aid. So here I am. Let's just do it. And my husband said, okay, no worries. We're going to start with the hearing assessment, went through, and there was a significant asymmetry. My husband said, you know, let's talk a bit more about the case history. And the client said, oh, yeah, I've noticed this ear's been deteriorating and things are fuzzy on that side and there was terrible speech on the, the lower side. And my husband said, look, I really think we shouldn't jump into hearing aids yet. I really think you need to go and see an ENT. And it turned out there was an acoustic neuroma and so went through surgery and all of this. And then a couple of months later, the client came back in and said, look, I came in for hearing aids and I didn't get them. Yes, you probably saved my life. Thank you. But I came in for hearing aids. So let's just get the hearing aids and you know, <laughs> tongue in cheek. It was a bit of a giggle moment. But still, um, my husband was so focused on what he needed to do, um, whereas perhaps could have still fit a hearing aid to the, the other side or, or, you know, thought about what the client needed in entirety. Um, so I think sometimes we're so focused on our own agenda and what we need to do, whereas um, a really good starting point is, hi, how are you going? And what can I help you with today? What, what's brought you in here today? Where would you like to start with today's appointment? Right. I think it's easy when you're in a helping profession to kind of get ahead of where the patient is. And yep. we have to always find ways to kind of walk alongside the patient, uh, guide them through the process and not tell them what to do. And I, and I find mm -hmm. myself in my 15 or 20 years as a clinician, uh, it's really hard to avoid that writing reflex where you're always trying to tell somebody this is what you need to do when they're maybe not ready to hear that yet. Um, so yeah. that's a good, 
a good example of what you said of, of, of uh, how that happens. Yeah. Um, I think it can happen at, at both ends. So it can be um, people who have hearing aids and perhaps aren't using them optimally. So, you know, those people, perhaps sometimes you'll have clients that come in and say, I only wear it when I'm watching TV or I only wear it when I'm going to certain situations and and we sit here and think, no, you have to wear it all day, every day. Um, But if we're going into that with a kind of pushing them rather than hearing their needs, then it's going to be more difficult to kind of convince them. But if if we help them understand what they're trying to get out of it and if it is holistic hearing health, then we can talk about the cognitive benefits of hearing 24 hours or 12 hours a day and wearing the hearing aid all day in that case. And so thinking about what their needs are, we can still come to that same sort of um, solution at the end, I guess, but helping to understand what what their needs are first, which will then help how we deliver that that healthcare and advice and information. It's mm, good. I think the irony here is that as hearing aid technology becomes more automated and more advanced, the need for person-centered, client-centered communication is more important than ever before. Yeah. And, uh, that really needs to be the focus, in my opinion, of what audiologists, that's what we need. That's the value that we add in a world yeah. where people can potentially self-fit, at least some people yeah. at least could self-fit their own devices. Um, I wanted to ask you one more question about the unreported hearing loss work that you've done. Um, if I remember right, and I think you mentioned this, uh, some of the of the unreported problems were like could would maybe warrant an adjustment to the hearing aid from the software, and others yeah. probably warranted more of of counseling. Could you yeah. kind of unpack those findings and what what you found? Yeah. So um, so. The, the study we did uh, about the annual review appointment, the second part to that study is we wanted to see whether annual review appointments were actually successful in improving hearing aid problems. So we surveyed a whole group of adults with hearing loss before their annual review appointment to see which of these hearing aid problems they were having, um, as well as some other surveys to look at hearing aid use and satisfaction and benefit and outcomes and those sorts of things. And then we let them go ahead and have their annual review appointment separate to us. So we don't know what their clinician did. Their clinician didn't even know they were in the study. So it was totally separate to the research. And then a month later, we surveyed them again to ask them what hearing aid problems they were having, the same surveys, so we could see if there was a change. So if they had more problems or less problems, which problems were improved, that sort of thing. And what we found is that overall, people had fewer problems. So problems to do with hearing aid handling and management improved, problems to do with sound quality um, and performance improved. And so it shows that where the uh, individual was aware of the problems and reported their problems to the clinician, the clinician had the skills to actually improve and address those problems. Um, And also those people who had a reduction in problems also then had an improvement in their perception of their hearing aid um, use and benefit and satisfaction and that sort of thing. So for us, it showed that the clinician is a really important piece of that puzzle and can help um, their clients overcome those hearing aid problems and can help improve that hearing aid benefit. 
Um, but part of the, the breakdown of that was the tuning, as you say, a lot of those problems were to do with um, fine tuning the device and, you know, changing the plumbing, improving comfort and fit and that sort of thing. Uh, but a lot of the cause for some of these problems are a lack of uh, understanding, a lack of training and education. And so that's where it's really important that the clinician has the skills to train their clients in a kind of safe and comforting environment. So I'll always remember this beautiful lady who was one of the participants in one of our focus groups who during our conversation of these hearing aid problems, she came and she said, so she'd lost uh, her hearing aid in the garden, gardening at one of them. And so she came in and saw her audiologist and the audiologist said, oh, no worries, no worries, we'll change it, we'll get you a new, you know, we'll get you a new one for that side, ordered a new one, not a problem. And then one month later, she lost it again. And so she came back in and said, oh, I'm no worries. Audiologist said, no worries, no worries. We'll get you a new one, not a problem. Under insurance, totally fine, not a problem. She said she lost it a third time and she came in and again, oh, not a problem. It happens to everyone. Don't worry, not a problem. And she said she felt wonderful and safe in the hands of this clinician that she could tell them, even though she knew it was her fault, she was losing it. It was this safe environment they could work together. One of the other participants in the same group piped up and said, I lost my hearing aid and told my audiologist and the audiologist reprimanded me and said, do you know how much these things are worth? You shouldn't have lost no. it. So they got a new one, but then when they lost the new one, they were too ashamed to go back and tell them again that they just now don't have that hearing aid. They're just using the one and don't use the one that they lost because they were so confronted by the first experience and, yeah, no. yeah couldn't go back in. So that. It shows you the value of compassion. <laughs> Just, yeah. You know, taking care of patients that you're seeing. That's a, that's a yeah. really good story. It reminds people that sometimes it's not how much you know, it's, you know, how you, how you communicate the information, how you treat people. Yeah, how you treat people, how you provide that kind of support. And there's the, the providing the education in a supportive way so it's not... Um, you know, we don't want to make people feel belittled or we don't want to patronise them in how we're showing them how to change the tubes and things, but it always needs to be appropriate. So some older adults will have the cognitive function that we can just describe it in the same way we would a 20-year-old client um, and some perhaps don't have the same cognitive function and so do need us to break it down and talk a bit slower and describe things in a, a sim more simple language. Um, but we need to make sure we're doing that in a way that it's not then patronising, that it's still in this sort of safe and, and right. comfort and, and um, yeah, comfortable relationship. What's your opinion about using the internet, maybe YouTube videos to kind of supplement the direct patient or client to provider, you know, I think about like some of these, um, some of these skills that patients or wearers need to be a good uh, hearing aid user um, yeah. are, you know, fairly routine. They just may need to hear it a couple of times. Do you yeah. think that it's good to put that on a video or maybe have an assistant that helps out? What's your, what's your uh, opinion about that? Yeah, look, I don't know what the answer is. Um, I've been thinking about this for a long time and I'm really interested in this area. In, in, a, um, in fact, I put a grant application in in this space last year and I'm really interested in this sort of area. Um, and I, I don't know what the answer is. So there are some great resources out there already. So Mel Ferguson and her colleagues in the UK produced that C to Hear or M to Hear um, 
CDs and they're all online. And I know there are some other groups in the US. Oh, I forget his name, but there's that fellow that um, the audiologist that has the YouTube channel that a lot of a lot of clients here in Australia, doc, Dr. Oh, what's his name? Anyway. Dr. Cliff. Cliff, yeah, that's him, that's him. A lot of our clients here in Australia watch his stuff as well. So there are some great resources out there and a lot of clients um, love them and use them, but a lot of clients don't as well. Um, and then we know that there are some issues with their hearing aid user manuals, um, not having ideal readability and font size and that sort of thing. But then if you look at what proportion of clients actually open them to read them? Well, not many anyway. Um, and so I do think a lot of our current clients prefer that human contact and, and a human showing them. And so in the, the group that I work for at Ear Science, um, we have the clinician actually, uh, we have a clinical arm and the clinicians do the, the training, but we also have admin support who can then do extra additional support and training. And all of our front admin staff are fully trained in how to, you know, clean and change batteries. And so we do a lot of over-the-counter support and over-the-phone support and that sort of thing. And so I think the model that we, that a lot of clinics in Australia try to use is that the, the whole team is a sort of a family and we all have the skills to support clients at any stage. And some of our clients have a really close relationship with the admin and they'll call them to say, the tube's stuck again, remind me, how do I do this? Um, and some of them prefer to come in and see their actual, the actual audiologist. So I think that's the, the essence of this patient-centred care and family-centred care is to set up a clinic that allows you to deliver a service that is modifiable to the needs of the individual patient as each one comes in. Well, I'm excited to know what direction you take that with your research, because it sounds like um, that's a fertile area to learn more about. Um, you know, I think maybe you could tailor the skills based on the personality and the style, yeah. the social style of the patient, you know, and then you just kind of plug in what's going to yeah. work best for them. And uh, you well, also, I think, Go ahead. No, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say the thing I'm most interested in, like I always like to start, maybe it sounds a bit pessimistic, um, but I always like to start with why didn't it work the first time? You know, so my PhD research was, okay, let's stop and let's look at the problem and now let's build a solution kind of thing. And mm -hmm. so I can see the, the manufacturers have these amazing apps and there's wonderful YouTube channels and there's these DVDs and there's, there's so many incredible resources out there to help our clients learn hearing aid management skills but there's low uptake and there are still huge amounts of skill deficiencies. And so my first thought is, what's the problem here? What's not working? What, so is it that as clinicians, we're not telling our clients about these resources? Is that the gap? In which case, yeah, do we need something simple, a, a brochure that lists all the different options that we can then give every client with every hearing aid sale? Um, or is the problem that the the things have been designed with a certain client in mind, maybe a younger or more tech-savvy client in mind, and that they haven't been designed really with the whole range of, of your average client in mind. And so, yeah, I think my, my starting point is there's amazing stuff out there. Why isn't it being used? Why isn't it working? Let's focus on the problem first and then start to build the solution. Well, I hope you can find a solution for us because that's a problem. <laughs> I think many of us here in the in the States, in Canada, other parts of the world are experiencing as well. There's yeah. a, a gap between, I know many, many audiologists out there that talk about this stuff and then the patients just don't 
for whatever reason, don't take advantage yeah. of some of the things that are available. Yeah. It's yeah. hard to know why that would be. Um, yeah. Well, anyway, we, I think um, we've been uh, chatting now for a well over 30 minutes and uh, we definitely want to have you back because we haven't even talked about the social and emotional impact of hearing loss on adults. And that's definitely something that I want to uh, pick your brain about, talk about your research in another episode. So can we have yeah, you back somewhere sure. in the next few months, maybe after the summer is over down there? Yeah, yeah, I'd love to. Yeah, we're about to enter our glorious summer period, 40 degree days, weeks and weeks <laughs> at the beach. So I'll, I'll come back a whole another darker shade of tan oh, yeah. and I'll see you on the other side. <laughs> well, I'm envious because it's about 5 p.m. here and it's almost dark because it's oh, in, no. in Minnesota. <laughs> Uh, but anyway, uh, uh, Dr. Bennett, where can people uh, contact you? Do you have an email, a website that yes. you'd like to share? Yeah, yeah. So my email address is Beck, B-E-C dot Bennett, B-E-N-N-E-T-T at earscience.org.au. Um, and so you can Google me at Ear Science in Perth um, or send me an email. And yeah, please reach out. I'm always, always keen to meet other clinicians around the world and answer any questions or hear your stories. Please, um, yeah, reach out to me. I'd love to hear from you. That's great to know. Uh, thanks again, uh, Dr. Bennett, Beck Bennett, researcher at Ear Science Institute in Perth, Australia. And uh, we'll see you in a few months. Thanks Wonderful. for your time. And Wonderful. Thanks, thanks Brian. Bye-bye. Hey, guys. <laughs> 